This is Carolyn Holly. Welcome to Game Plan for Life with Skip Hall. For the next half hour, you're going to be encouraged and challenged by Skip and his guests as they discuss the game plan for life. In sports, as in life, it's important to have a game plan. And as Skip says, no game plan, no victory. Game Plan for Life is brought to you by the following sponsors. Dutch Bros of Boise, an experience guaranteed to satisfy. McDowell Specialty Repair, Susie Boyle Mortgage Team and Castle and Cook Mortgage, LLC, and Rio Body Center. And now, here's your host, Skip Hall. This is Skip Hall. Welcome to Game Plan for Life. Well, today I've got a very interesting guest. You're going to certainly enjoy his his story and message that he has. Uh, His name is Colonel Tom Greco, and I want to share a little bit about him before we we, uh, turn it over to him. Colonel Greco served in the Army for over 24 years in peace and war. His assignments included various staff and infantry command positions in Europe, the United States, Southwest Asia, and the Republic of Panama. In the Army, he was primarily an infantry commander, leading and serving in units from a platoon to brigade task force in peace and war, including leading a task force during Operation Desert Storm. He also served on a variety of high-level staffs in the Joint Services Environment and with U.S. agencies and international coalitions. Additionally, he serves as the Dean of Students at the U.S. Military Academy. Colonel Greco retired from active duty in 1996. Colonel Greco, welcome to Game Plan for Life. Skip, thank you so much. It's good to be here. Well, we're sure going to enjoy hearing your story, and that's what we're going to do first is go back and let's talk about where you grew up and kind of move us uh, chapter by chapter up until we uh, where we are today. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, small little town outside of Pittsburgh, became a great Pittsburgh Steeler, oh, yeah. Pirates and Penguins fan. <laughs> And I was very fortunate to get an appointment to West Point Mm -hmm. uh, just in my senior year of high school. Went there, and uh, for four years I played football there for for West Point, Mm -hmm. and then was selected infantry as my branch and where I wanted to go Mm -hmm. and serve in the Army. Uh, My first assignment was in Germany. I was a platoon leader and later became a general's aide and managed our general's schedule. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met my wife. She mm. was also in the Army. Really? And uh, Gail and I met there in Baumholder, Germany. Uh, we came back to New Plymouth, Idaho, where she lived, and mm-hmm. I proposed to her, and we got married. Mm-hmm. We have uh, three children. Yeah. Our son, Scott, he's also a West Point graduate, and he just retired as an Army lieutenant colonel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse, who's a uh, school teacher in Colorado Springs, and our youngest daughter is Meg, and she is a registered nurse working at uh, St. Al's right now mm. in Boise. Yeah. Uh, we have eight grandchildren, mm. and uh, Gail and I just really enjoy uh, hiking, biking. Outdoor stuff. Uh, outdoor stuff. And we also, uh, for many years, have gone on missions down to Ensenada, Mexico, with a ministry called Yugo Ministries, Youth with a Mission down there. And uh, we build homes for needy Mexicans. Mm. 
I've taught uh, after retirement. I uh, I served as the dean of students for Treasure Valley Community College. I worked for the Albertson Foundation. Yeah. And then uh, my church asked me if I could be the executive pastor for the church. Mm-hmm. And that church at that time was called New Heights Christian Fellowship. Okay. And I was a little bit hesitant to become a pastor. I wasn't sure I had the right qualifications. I also wasn't quite sure that, uh, you know, I hadn't gone to seminary. But they, my pastor, my superintendent, and the bishop all in the Free Methodist Church all helped me Mm -hmm. to become a pastor. Mm. I served there for about 10 years, and then we moved up to Cascade, thinking that was going to be our retirement home. Mm. And uh, little did I know that God was going to call me back to be a pastor in Ontario Community Church okay. in Ontario, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where we are today. Ontario, Oregon. Yep, been there many times. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful, multicultural community. Our church was started by Japanese Americans who were interned during the World War II era, and just a wonderful, amazing group of saints who were very generous and very focused on helping their community. Mm. Well, Tom, you've got a lot more to that story. We're going to try to dig it out as we go along here, but uh, I think uh, I would would like you to share uh, how you came to Christ, that story. That, that is mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah. Please share. Well, I was a lieutenant colonel in the 3187 Infantry, the 3rd Battalion 187 Infantry in the 101st Airborne Division. And, of course, in August of 90, Saddam Hussein crossed the border mm-hmm. into Kuwait and attacked Kuwait. And President Bush, the first President Bush, put a coalition together. And in late August, my unit was deployed to Saudi Arabia. We were preparing to fight the Iraqis unless they could, our our statesmen, the diplomats, could secure some type of peace. Yeah. As November, December came closer, we knew that we were going to fight. Mm. We knew that Saddam Hussein was not going to back away. And, of course, in January 16th or so, this, the air war started. And so we began began to train in, in earnest. Our mission uh, for Desert Storm was to air assault. We flew in helicopters, and then the helicopters landed, mm-hmm. and then we deployed our infantry soldiers out. We were to air assault deep behind enemy lines, and we were going to be about 100 miles from Baghdad in the first hours of the war. Mm. We would fight literally surrounded because we were alone. Right. And uh, we were going to fight along the Euphrates River along a highway called Highway 8. Highway 8 led out of Baghdad and went south into the Basra area where a lot of the fighting occurred. Mm -hmm. And my mission was to block that road, not let anything go south and anything kind of retreating back from from the south right. to the north stopped them as well. Had about 1,500 soldiers in my unit. Mm-hmm. When I got the mission, uh, my division commander told me, Tom, here's your mission. And because it's high risk, we're expecting about 40% casualties. 
Wow. It's about 600 soldiers. Yep. 600 sons, 600 dads, mm. 600 brothers. Right. We started training for uh, this operation. We started rehearsing. Coach, you understand the, the importance of rehearsing and yeah. practicing, and we did the same thing. Sure. And everything was going wrong. Nothing was going right. Mm. My soldiers weren't responding right. We weren't doing the right things. And I had a highly trained unit, but it was almost like God was speaking to my heart and mm. telling me, quit trusting in yourself mm. and trust in me. Mm. Our chaplain gave us a Bible. It was a 365-day Bible. Right. The Bible broken up into daily readings. And that night, after just a horrible rehearsal, I read about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Sure. And how Joshua asked God for the battle plan. Mm -hmm. And God said, here it is. And Joshua followed it to a T. Mm-hmm. And in response to Joshua's obedience, God provided an earthquake that blew down those walls, and Joshua conquered the city of Jericho. Mm, yep. About the same time, there was a pain in my chest, and I literally thought I was having a heart attack, mm. but it was really God getting a grip on me. And I realized my arrogance, my wanting to do it all, my wanting to, you know, to try to do it all by myself. Yeah was going to cost the lives of all my soldiers. Mm. So in that tent that night, with tears now coming my, um, from my eyes and a pain in my chest, I rolled over and I asked the Lord for forgiveness. I asked the Lord to be the leader of my life. And I asked the Lord to be the leader of my unit. Mm. After I said those words, the pain in my chest abated. My tears stopped. And I just knew mm. that I was now God's son. Yeah. And he was our leader. Yeah. And you were his vessel. Yes, sir. The next couple of days or rehearsals, everything went well. It was like night and day. In fact, many of my soldiers asked me if I was okay. <laughs> and I couldn't understand that. And I would say, why? I'm still Tom Greco. I'm still your commander. And they know, said, sir, something's different about mm-hmm. you. And there was something different yeah, about me. I bet. now had Christ in my yeah, heart. You bet. Well, finally, our, our D-Day came. And we were to fly between and behind two Iraqi divisions. And as we went to the Euphrates River and landed 100 miles from Baghdad, we knew those divisions had, and the, our Iraqi division was about 8,000 to 9,000 soldiers. We knew that the Iraqis had the best, mon- the best weapons oil money could buy, sure. but they didn't have night vision goggles. Mm. So we said, we'll fly at night. We'll fly un- under 16 feet, literally on the deck, because right. their radar picked us up at 17 feet. Mm-hmm. And we would fly pitch black darkness at night. Mm. And so that was our plan. We also had to fly, I had to fly vehicles forward, and uh, we had to use Chinooks. Our infantry soldiers would fly in Blackhawks, but our Chinooks could come and they would take our big vehicles. And Chinooks look like a school bus with twin rotors on top. Okay. <laughs> and they're very, they're very good, but they eat a lot of gas. 
So when we planned our mission, we could fly our Blackhawks forward all the way to the Euphrates and back. And all my infantry soldiers would be on the ground. Mm. But our, our Chinooks would only, could only fly about 60 miles from our objective and then run back, or otherwise they would have ran out of gas. Yeah. So those vehicles would have to move cross-country to link up with our soldiers mm. on the Euphrates. And that was a great plan, except the Euphrates River had flooded. And so mm-hmm. everywhere those vehicles were going to go, and there were no roads, right. our vehicles would have to go through knee-deep to thigh-deep mud. Mm. And you're looking at me like, that's a crazy plan, Tom, <laughs> but that was our plan. That was the plan. Well, day about 3 o'clock in the morning on D-Day, the sky was clear. There was no illumination. And we were just ready to go. And all of a sudden, a storm came in, and it was a storm so thick that I, and fog so thick that I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Wow. And even in combat, you have a situation where, you know, you got to take in safety concerns. So I knew I couldn't fly and pit, you know, in this fog that we couldn't even see in front of us. So I had to delay the mission four, five, six, and all of a sudden, six, the lights coming up. So now we're going to lose our edge at night mm. where the Rockies couldn't see us. Now they'll be able to see us. Eight, nine o'clock and about 845, just like a snap of a finger, the fog stopped and we launched our aircraft. Mm. The fog just lifted. 60 Blackhawks and about 40 Chinooks flew perfectly. Everything, everybody landed exactly in the right place. My soldiers that landed on the objectives on the Euphrates told me that it looked like the Iraqis were rubbing their eyes. They couldn't believe that we were that close, that deep behind enemy lines on the first hours of the war. Mm. My Chinook commander and the guys in charge of the vehicles called me and said, sir, we'll be there probably in about an hour. I wasn't expecting them for 24 hours. Mm. I said, did you land in the right place? And they told me, sir, we'll tell you later, out. My soldiers on the ground, they've deployed out. Most of the Iraqis surrendered. Some of of them fought, and we either killed or captured them, then moved into position. My vehicle commanders showed up with all the vehicles about an hour, hour and a half after we landed. Mm -hmm. And I said, did you land in the right place? And he told me, sir, it was the darndest thing. Hmm. He said, when we landed, we knew we were going to have to slug it out. The mud was deep. But, sir, there was a storm blowing in front of us, and it was blowing what looked like a road. And when I got there, it had four inches of sand on top of the mud, and I rolled my Humvee up there, and it held my vehicle. Mm. And so I looked where that this road was going to go, and it was on the same azimuth that we're supposed to travel to link up with you. Wow. So, sir, being, I didn't want to be a fool. I just got on the road, and we just drove 60 miles an hour and got here. Amazing. Day one, day one was fights right after another. I think it was General Sherman in, world, in the Civil War that said, war is hell. Mm-hmm. And I got to understand the truth of those words. Yep. Our, you know, the, our tour, the battlefield in front of us was marks of artillery rounds, burning vehicles, mm. dead Iraqi bodies. Uh, day two, fights one right after the other. 
and in many cases our soldiers were fighting in kind of like the covered wagons of the West. The Iraqis would come down from the north from Baghdad and we'd stop them. They'd come from the south, we'd stop them. Those were units that were retreating. And to the left and right, they'd try to swing around and we would stop them. I have to tell you, our soldiers didn't have Kevlar vests and Kevlar helmets. But we didn't have any ability to dig foxholes because the Euphrates River had flooded. And when our soldiers started digging, their foxholes filled up with water. It would just cave in. So we used kind of like irrigation ditches and folds in the ground to hide behind and protect us. Late day two, uh, early morning day three, we got a call that said an Iraqi tank division or tank brigade. They intercepted a message and that tank brigade was going to move north and knock us off our position. Infantry fighting tanks is not pretty, mm-hmm. yeah. especially when you don't have anything to protect you. So all day and all night, I kept we kept track of that unit. And then about four o'clock in the morning, I got a call from the intelligence officer and said, where are they? And he said, we lost them. Mm-hmm. How could you possibly lose them? Mm-hmm. He said, Tom, we just lost them. That unit never attacked us that day. No kidding. And later I found out, after, you know, when I went back and talked at the Fort Benning, Georgia, I found out that that tank brigade had actually stopped along a road and actually was head, head to tail, laid, laid, out, laid out head to tail on a road. And a unit much south of us from the 24th Infantry Division was making what was called the right hook, Desert Storm. They were mm-hmm. moving uh, towards Basra. And one of the tank mechanized infantry tank units engaged that brigade mm. and destroyed about 70 tanks in about four minutes. Wow. When they captured all the prisoners and interrogated them, they captured the brigade commander of that unit. And that commander said that they, his mission was to knock off the Screaming Eagles mm. off of Highway 8. Mm. Screaming Eagles is a nickname of the 101st. Yep, yep, yep. Day, wow. day four came. Uh, we won the war in four days. Mm. The general sued for peace. I called my unit together and got my logistics officer to get more ammo, more food, hot coffee. Probably a lot of my soldiers never even slept during those four days because the intensity of combat. Right. And then I asked for the report that I really didn't want to hear about or friendly wounded, friendly killed. Mm-hmm. We had killed or captured over a thousand Iraqis. We just we destroyed close to 200 vehicles hmm. during those four days. Not one of my soldiers was killed. Not one of my soldiers was wounded. Wow. Not one of my soldiers even had a scratch. That's unbelievable. I will tell you, in training, I would have young men roll vehicles, break arms, you know, weapons would explode, all those things. And there's no way that anyone could ever convince me. Yeah about what God did yeah. and how we could come out of that battle without a scratch. Mm. 
Wow, what a what a tremendous story. And uh, it all started when you bent the knee. When you ask God into your heart, I mean, and you ask him to get me in your life, you know, and that has taken me to where I am today. Uh, you know, I, after going through the Army and, and being at Treasure Valley, being with the Albertson Foundation and then going, becoming a pastor right. in my church, you know, I now pastor a church mm-hmm. in Ontario, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful church with wonderful people. And COVID really set us back. That was kind of a desert storm for us at COVID, you know, and and the restrictions that the state of Oregon put on churches at that time. If you can believe it, uh, we were not called essential. Marijuana dispensaries were essential. Right. But in Oregon, churches were not essential. Yeah. And so I tried to find a way, because we weren't meeting, to reach them. And that's when I wrote this book, Living right. in the Light. Right. And I wrote, I wrote devotionals to my unit or to my church to keep them in touch mm-hmm. so that they and, and I could you know, still be a body and, and serve each other. Well, that's what I want to get to next. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, You've got an amazing story, and you also wrote this book called Living in the Light. What caused you to write this book? Well, like I I mentioned, I think I was— we were doing only video messages. We had no capability of doing church services in our sanctuary. And I just felt a need to touch our people— with you know with something and so i started writing about two devotionals a week different things and and some of it just you know things that happened in my life things that i bumped into people that told me stories different things like that and i found that and i sent those out via text and via email and i found that you know it gave people hope it gave people an opportunity to listen and to read and to hear uh, and also to dig into the Bible because I always based a message on a Bible verse. Oh, sure. And uh, I found I actually found some people that they like my devotionals more than they like my messages on <laughs> Sunday, <laughs> which is which was pretty funny. Yeah, and uh, but I, I appreciate their honesty. And I just uh, I just think it, it just helps people during this time. Mm. And uh, I met a publisher who read some of mine and she said, let's put these together and put them in a book. We're working on another one right now that we're writing only to soldiers and soldiers' families Mm. to talk about some of the things that that I experienced and also some of the things that Gail experienced because Gail, she's my best friend, Mm. and we've been together for 46 years, but she was a soldier. Mm. She's also a wife of a soldier, and she was a mom of a soldier because our son served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I think she has a, a unique perspective. So we're putting this book together and hopefully get it out by August or September mm-hmm. of next year. That's that's outstanding. I'm sure that 
Some enlightenment to, to those uh, people in the military is, is always a good thing to hear from somebody that's been there. Yeah, and I, I hope it just brings them, much like living a light, I hope that brings them, you know, some comfort, some mm-hmm. peace, and also some hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also understand that God deeply loves them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, Tom, uh, we've been through uh, your life story, it seems like, and we've learned a lot, uh, especially from the your your service to the military and, and how that all works. I mean, that's just, it's incredible. But you, your story tops them all with the cover that you had, you know, the fog, and, and uh, yeah, it's it's a God thing. It's a God story for sure. It, it truly is, yeah. Coach, and I, uh, I, I still get chills when well, I talk bet. about it. I'll, I'll bet. I'll bet. And then after it's over, you you kind of sit back and, and think, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know how it happened for sure. Besides uh, what you've been doing, Tom, with the books and, and the ministry and, and all that, um, what do you do for fun outside of all this? Oh, Gail and I love to be in the outdoors. Yeah. We love to ski. We love to hike. Uh, we try to hike a couple of days a week. With some wonderful friends, yeah, that's... we you know just try to get outside. Idaho is such a beauty. It's I grew a... up in Pennsylvania, mm. and when I met Gail and proposed to her and came, to Idaho. came back here, I I couldn't. My eyes just popped out. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe how beautiful oh, Idaho was. Absolutely, yep. and so this is home for yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, we're out of time, but I sure have enjoyed visiting with you and hearing your story, and I'm sure the listeners have as well. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, sir. I want to take just a moment and wish all our listeners a very Merry Christmas. And uh, never forget that Jesus is the reason for the season. So with that, we'll go, uh, we'll go our way and serve uh, the Lord in whatever way we can. So God bless all of you. Thank you. Game Plan for Life is brought to you by the following sponsors. Christian Brothers Automotive. Security Gold and Silver, a reliable source for your bullion investment. Domino's Pizza. Diamond Heating and Cooling. Hoffman Auto Body, someone you can trust. And Zero Edge Carpet Cleaning. Thank you for listening to Game Plan for Life with Skip Hall. This is Carolyn Holly inviting you to listen at this same time on this same station next Saturday as Skip and his guests go over the game plan for life. Have a great weekend. And remember, no game plan, no victory. 